Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Mark Dunlight. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with an overview of the campaign to establish the Working Families Tax Credit. Then we hear about the future of emergency feeding programs. We follow that with a story about medicine accessibility within medical ethics. Then Sina talks with Tanya Asili about her climate justice performance of Fever Pitch coming to the Linda on Saturday, January 27th. And we finish up with the Kitchen Sanctuary Cooks, Jonathan Siegel and Ntaba Lif Anderson. But first, headlines. Russell Sage College has launched a new program to help school leaders become principals and superintendents, filling a void left by the pending closure of the College of St. Rose. The Town of Bethlehem and the Mohawk Hudson Land Conservancy have signed an agreement ensuring that no property will be developed on the West Rock Forest in Glenmont. The property includes 66 acres. Cahoe's City Councilman Thomas Fife will resign after serving one month representing the 6th Ward rather than be removed by the Democratic Common Council. Other council members felt that he was not legally allowed to be on the council while employed as a full-time firefighter by the city. The Times Union reports that midwives, including many Mennonites, were at the state capitol on Tuesday asking state lawmakers to loosen the restrictions on their ability to practice in New York, arguing that the profession helps fill critical gaps amid a statewide maternal and infant mortality crisis and should be expanded. Midwives who are known as certified professional midwives are not allowed to practice in New York, but are allowed to do so in many other states. Governor Hochul is proposing to, quote, level the playing field, end quote, between vacation rentals uh, by making short-term rentals like Airbnb pay the same sales tax as hotels. In the decision welcomed by climate activists, the White House has announced that it will delay a decision on the enormous CP2 natural gas export terminal. One of 17 proposed LNG export terminals would actually be the largest in the United States. The United States has never rejected such an export terminal. Um, and the United States presently leads the world in both liquefied natural gas exports and oil and gas production. The Gazette reports that the city of Schenectady expects that the city's new Central Park pool will be ready to open at the beginning of the summer. The Gazette also reports that some state lawmakers are pushing back on Governor Hochul's proposal to adjust the state education formula for local schools now that the court-ordered changes in funding to promote equity are fully in place. Some object to ending the practice of ensuring that funding for a particular school is never reduced from previous levels, even when enrollment drops. Some Republicans are also pushing for increased state aid to schools that enroll asylum seekers. And that's it for headlines. 
For our first story, anti-poverty advocates are proposing the Working Families Tax Credit to combine several existing tax credits into one cohesive credit aimed at helping struggling families. Mark talks with Lisa Schwarzweid of the New York Immigration Coalition. We're talking with Liza Schwarzwald, who is a member of the New York Immigration Coalition, and they have a proposal to try to give more resources to, to working families. So, so Liza, what, 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 what is the proposal? Sure. Um, so something that we've noticed, obviously, throughout New York State is that families are having a real problem with affordability. They can't afford their housing. They can't afford food. They struggle with child care. So what we did was we looked at all of this and we looked at our tax code. And we realized that there were some changes that we could make to that tax code through what we are calling the Working Families Tax Credit that would make that a lot better for families. So what the bill does is it takes three existing tax benefits. So the Empire State Child Credit, which is New York's version of the tax credit, uh, of the child tax credit. It takes the earned income tax credit, also the New York version, and the dependent exemption. And it mushes those together into this bigger, better credit that's going to give almost every single parent with children across New York State more money um, and more resources than the current credits do. Now, one thing most elected officials do agree upon is we should make work pay. People who work um, should have enough to support their their families. Um, what, What type of support are you seeing so far for this proposal? Absolutely. So, yeah, we do have a fair amount of elected support. Um, our two champions for this bill are the Senator, uh, Senator Gennardis, and then Assemblymember Hevesy. So they've been fighting very hard for this. And one thing that we saw last year was actually that we did see support for this um, expansion. We did actually win a part of this bill. So last year, um, as part of the Working Families Tax Credit campaign, we were pushing for the Empire State Child Credit to get rid of an exclusion that it used to have. So before this year, um, if you had a child under the age of four in New York State, you didn't get access to the Empire State Child Credit. So until your child turned four, you got no assistance from that credit. We said that's really silly. We know that younger children have many, many needs. Uh, Newborns have a lot of needs, formula, diapers. Families were struggling with those. So, you know, we did in fact get enough support within the Senate, the Assembly, and the Governor to expand to the under fours for the child credit last year. So this year we're really looking to build upon that support to make an even bigger, broader credit work. Um, So yeah, the Senate has a lot of support there. We have a lot of support in the Assembly. And a lot of what we're trying to do now is make sure that families all across New York and groups all across New York understand what this tax credit could do for them so that they can, you know, let their electeds know that this is something that would be helpful. So what are some of the groups uh, presently, you know, mobilizing to um, help get this across the finish line? Sure. Um, So we have a lot of groups that have worked on this uh, for the last several years. So a lot of child poverty groups, groups like the Schuyler Center, like Children's Agenda, um, the Education Trust New York. These are groups that have pushed to do this, particularly because we've seen the effects that this has had on children. Poverty is something that we know has incredible ill effects on children's health and well-being, on their financial success, on their academic success. Um, So we've had a lot of child groups. We've had pediatric doctors who've supported the group. We've had 
um, unions like 32BJ. We've had the Working Families uh, the Working Families Party on board. So we're really looking looking to broaden the scope even further. But there is a diverse group of advocates all across New York State who are supporting the bill. So, who's who's opposing it? You know, we haven't had anybody come out and say, absolutely not, we're not going to do this. Um, Interestingly, expansions to the child tax credit particularly have a lot of bipartisan support, particularly with voters. Um, So we don't get the kind of pushback we might get from other spaces. Um, You know, we, we, we hear occasionally that people talk about how much the cost will be. Um, And I think that we like to put into perspective and say, well, one, the money that we put out through these tax credits gets goes right back into New York State's economy. It goes to small businesses. It goes to your grocery, your local grocery stores. It goes to um, your local landlord who you're paying rent to, all of these things. So um, when we look at this, we're really looking at something that actually does have broad support in both red and blue areas and even for independent voters. It's just a lot of strong support. But what we need is, you know, a little bit more um, explanation and education about what this will actually do for families. Because sometimes people hear taxes and they think, oh, this is a bad thing or, you know, oh, this is a complicated thing. Um, And so we're trying to simplify that and really explain to all of our New York families, here is what the working families tax credit could do for you. And if this is something that you believe in and that you want and that would be helpful to you, you should go ahead and tell your um, your electeds why that is, um, regardless of which side of the political spectrum they may be on. Now, Governor Hogle put out her budget proposals on um, January 16th. I don't recollect seeing this in her budget proposal. What has been her administration response so far to this idea? Sure. Um, So obviously last year she did, in fact, expand the child tax credit. So we do know that this is a part of her broader vision for children in New York State. She talks a lot about how difficult her own experiences were paying for things like formula and diapers for her own children. Um, And so I think we're looking at here just a bigger push that we need to make sure that she knows that this is a very, very popular bill. Um, She has not directly opposed it. I think the only pushback is likely to be simply the cost again. um, And, you know, we are heading into an election year. So I think we're looking at some folks who are maybe just questioning what we should be spending our money on. This particular bill is a great option for really for the governor, um, you know, with her Uh, focus on the health and well-being of children in New York State for our electeds who are looking to their constituents and their districts to see what do those families need, how can I help fill those needs. Um, So I think this tax credit bill really fits into a broader vision that a lot of our electeds have talked about and that the governor has talked about. So we're really looking to just make sure she understands where this fits and how much it would, in fact, move the, uh, the whole state forward for everybody. Have other states uh, done some of the things so far? Yes, um, there have been, I believe last year, I think 12 different states across the country, and I can't unfortunately tell you what they are off the top of my head, um, but did have expansions to their tax credits. So either their earned income tax credit, their child tax credit, or in certain places, I think Washington is one, an actual working families tax credit. Now, of course, you know, there's been a lot of attention paid to issues like housing is very unaffordable and things like that. You know, what is the situation for a lot of, you know, working people in the the state? Are they able to pay their bills? Uh, No, a lot of people struggle. Um, We did have um, a study that was done in New York City last year. Um, It was called the True Cost Study. It was done by United Way. 
And what they found was a full 50%, so half of New York families with children, were not meeting the cost of living in New York. So if you took into account housing, food, utilities, childcare, like the actual basics, 50% of parents were not meeting that need. When you looked at single parents, that number was 80%. So 80% of single families, of single parents in New York City were not meeting the true cost of living. And that is something that we're seeing across the entire state. We're seeing people say, housing is too expensive. Food is too expensive. What am I supposed to do? And we're saying this bill will actually go a long way in helping to lift all of those families up. And we've seen what this could look like because we saw on the federal level when um, we expanded the child tax credit back in 2021, it lifted 50%. So half of all of the children in the entire country were lifted out of poverty through that expanded child tax credit. So we can really do something similar in New York State and make sure that families actually get what they need. Um, and I'll make one more point here, which is that um, our, our friends at United Neighborhood Houses and the Educational Alliance did a study called the Sharp Report. They're actually releasing um, the second phase of that on January 23rd that tells us exactly what New York families spent their child tax credit on. And the number one thing was food. And right after that was rent. So we're really looking and we're seeing basic utilities. The entire, like the top seven things that people spent their money on were things they had no choice but to spend money on and where they clearly needed help. So we have about 60 seconds left. Uh, if people want more information about this, uh, I mean, state budget must be adopted by April 1st. How can they find more information and, you know, how best can they converse with their legislators if they want to express an opinion? Absolutely. Uh, you can come find us at the New York Immigration Coalition. We have information on all of our campaigns on our website. Um, so we are we are very happy to have new partners, additional partners come on board. We meet once uh, once a month every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Um, on a Zoom call. So we're really looking to make sure that we get this information out to everybody. So please visit us at nyic.org, and you can look at all of our campaigns. Thank you very much. This has been Liza Schwartzwald, and this is New York Immigration Coalition, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'll also mention on Tuesday, I covered a broader rally by the New York Immigration Coalition on a lot of issues, particularly legal representation for uh, immigrants, and we'll be having that story um, later in the week. But also a point that you're going to hear about in the up next story um, is that, you know, there were a lot of programs um, to help poor people that were expanded during COVID, uh, especially at the federal level. And unfortunately, many of those programs have been now terminated or gone back to the old system uh, because allegedly COVID is over with. And so we're actually seeing, uh, unfortunately, a major upsurge uh, in poverty. So Greg Silverman is the head of the West Side Campaign Against Hunger, one of the most innovative emergency food programs in New York from over the last 40 years. For our Peace and Justice segment, he talks to Mark about the need to change the emergency food system, including collective advocacy for healthy food. We're talking today to Greg Silverman, who is CEO and Executive Director of West Side uh, Campaign Against Hunger, uh, active with Roundtable in Allies for Food Access, and is also, I believe, the board chair of the um, 
Alliance for a Hunger-Free uh, New York. But he recently wrote uh, a chapter of a new book. The book is The Handbook of Food Insecurity and Society. And his uh, chapter was titled Emergency Feeding in America, Making Words and Deeds uh, Actually Matter. So well, so welcome, Greg. And um, maybe just start off talking, you know, if you want a little bit about your own background. But, uh, you know, what was the purpose of this um, chapter that you wrote? Well, yeah. Well, thanks first for having me on today. It's nice to be here. Yeah, my background's as a chef and former restaurant owner in upstate New York. I'm born and raised in Utica, but I had restaurants in Ithaca and uh, always was at the same time as having my restaurants working on the side, trying to help alleviate hunger in, in my community. Uh, and when I did a master's in food policy, I had a great professor in uh, Martin Carraher in London. And when I, uh, he asked me to write a chapter of a book. And so we started talking about like, what, what's actually happening when you talk about fighting food insecurity in, in the United States? Now, one of the points that you make, um, you know, many people refer to food pantries and soup kitchens as emergency food programs, uh, but at the same time, the recent sort of explosion of the express programs in the United States uh, has been going on now for four decades. So are they really emergency food programs? Yeah, no, that, that's one of the key points, right? Emergencies last days or weeks or months. On a rare occasion, you have something like a pandemic that lasts a couple of years, but emergencies don't last four decades right and so it's a fallacy for us to call this emergency feeding an emergency this is a systemic issue and there's some great organizations doing work to help people in that but you know so we're always trying to look at like what are we really doing and what's real impact as opposed to like gee what makes me feel good about you know handing out food now, one of the things I had known a West Side campaign against hunger uh, before you join it was was both that it um, you know try to perhaps better address sort of uh, consumer needs and consumer rights. Uh, it sort of pioneered the supermarket style um, approach to a pantry where the customers walk around and and actually like a store you know pick up their things, but also a real big I mean remember Doreen Wall real big focus on the uh, you know, sort of proper nutrition. How, you know, what are your goals um, in, in terms of how should emergency food programs, food pantries, and soup kitchens be evolving at this point? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. On one level, right, totally. I'm so thankful to be able to run the West Side Campaign Against Hunger, often called WISCA, uh, for the last seven years. And Doreen and the folks before me, right, like really pioneered this choice model letting people have a choice of which vegetables they wanted. We've taken it at a whole different level. And I let me back up to being a chef. Like when I came to Wiska, our organization was giving out 15% of our food in the form of fresh produce. And Wiska was considered best practice anywhere. And, and for, from my work working with First Lady Obama back in Washington and as a chef who did nutrition education and on different continents, like I was, in some sense appalled right it's like 15 percent. like i want half your plate fruits and vegetables and not just canned fruits and vegetables fresh so we're at 50 you know we're at 53 percent of the food we give out now is fresh produce and and it's top quality produce choice used to be really about and if you ask our customers we surveyed them a lot and we continue to choice was about picking the product the best product because oftentimes pantries were giving out uh, they had a selection of product and a lot of it was inferior, right? I want to pick a good tomato because some of them are rotten. But once we transformed our work to 
you know, 50% or more fresh produce and actually purchasing more of the food, getting best quality product, our customers, and like anyone else who lives in any community, choice is way bigger than do I want kale or collards or tomatoes or oranges. Choice is about when do I want my food? Where do I want my food? How do I want to get my food? Like the choice of, you know, going into the basement of a church to pick between 10 types of vegetables is a pretty meager choice. So we've sort of taken choice and expanded it greatly and, and given it the same level of choice that every consumer should get today, not just, you know, consumers in a food pantry. One of the things you initiated in New York City, um, maybe it's larger than New York City, is the Roundtable uh, Allies for Food Access. What, what's the purpose of this collaborative effort? Yeah, so as a, as a chef and former restaurant owner, what I always knew is that wholesale, my wholesalers were always floating prices, as we like to say, right? Like there's a tomato blight one year, so the tomato price goes up. It never goes back down. So I started, when I had my restaurant, sharing pricing with other restaurants and actually literally on, on a fax machine, this was back in the 90s, uh, I was sharing the pricing for my wholesalers with other wholesalers saying, here's what everyone's trying to sell me this week. And I, people got really upset at me, and but it, but they started lowering their prices. And so when I got to Westside Campaign Against Hunger, I reached out to a num another a number of other food emergency food providers uh, across the city, Project Hospitality in Staten Island, New York Common Pantry, and uh, Upper East Side, East Harlem, uh, St. John's Bread and Life, and and we now Met Council's a part of it, and, and many others. And uh, we share data on our pricing. And we use that to get better pricing, to drive down the cost of what we're purchasing. And therefore, we're taking our state grants that we get, say, from HIPNAP or Nourish, those funds that we get from the state, city money, private sector money that we have, and we can best utilize and steward those dollars to be able to buy more product. So we want to get better and more product for our customers. And the way to do that is to drive down the cost. It's like simple business solutions. And then we realized we just started sharing best practice, not just in purchasing, but in designs of our warehouses, designs of our mobile trucks, you know, job, like how our job descriptions are laid out, like anything to share information to make our lives easier because we're off, we're, you know, we're all understaffed and all trying to do a lot of really important work. And so we have to share information. We're not in competition or, you know, theoretically, right? In my perspective, we're not in competition. We're all trying to fight food insecurity for our customers. So if someone's not sharing information, then they don't seem to be, to me, mission focused. So we just want to share information to sort of help us all advance our missions faster for our, for our community. Now, in your chapter, the emergency feeding in America, making words and deeds actually matters, part of the handbook of food insecurity and society, you finish the chapter with uh, lessons for the future, um, discussing the need to continue to break down silos, engage with the healthcare systems, and advocate for change at city, state, and federal levels. So what are some of those, you know, real life lessons you're trying to put into place or hope to put into place? Yeah, we're putting them all into place right now. I mean, you know, we work at the West Side Campaign Against Hunger uh, with New York Presbyterian Hospital Network. And, and, you know, we know from a social determinants of health landscape you know the hospitals uh, a client comes to a hospital for some service turns out that outside of their issue that they have that they presented with at the emergency room or with the doctor food insecurity is high up on the list of one of the biggest things that are that are of concern for people 
the hospital wanted to do something about it. And so they connected with us. And so now we have upwards, we're piloting now, we'll be on pilot. We have over a thousand families. Uh, usually a customer comes into the hospital, whether they're a mom with a kid zero to five or a senior who's in a sort of isolated living circumstance, if they present with food insecurity uh, as, a, as an issue, we're going to get them food and we're going to deliver it to their door. And they're going to be able to choose different categories of food. Do they want alternative dairy? Do they want you know, only vegetarian protein? They're going to choose these things. It's going to deliver it in a two-hour time window. They're going to be able to track it just like they were getting like any other groceries delivered at home. And then we're going to follow up our benefits enrollment team is going to follow up with each and every person and walk through what benefits could we possibly, are they eligible for that we can help them, you know, apply for and ultimately receive, whether that's SNAP or housing or WIC or health insurance, you know, all these different areas. So we We're think we're almost a, out of time. If you want more information about what you're doing, how best can they get that? Check out wisca.org, W-S-C-A-H.org. And just, you know, the truth of the matter is every emergency food provider in this state, especially up in the capital region, is struggling right now. They need volunteers. They need food. They need cash to do their work. And they need it directly. They don't need it indirectly through some other larger entity. We need direct support. And so wherever you are, you know, support your local uh frontline emergency food provider. Uh, Greg Silverman, Westside Campaign Against Hunger, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. One of and the I'm issues that we have seen, um, you know, over the last 40 years, um, which Greg recognizes, is that Distributing more emergency food is not a solution to hunger. Um, it is good that many of the anti-hunger programs do now at least work to raise things like uh, SNAP benefits. But unfortunately, there seems to have been a real retreat recently about the need to address more of the root causes of, of, of hunger, including high housing costs, um, you know, low wages. Uh, and, and hopefully some of the younger generation will step forward and um, you know, sort of revamp the uh, anti-hunger uh, organized movement. But for those just tuning in, and even those who have been listening for a while, I'm Mark Dunley. And I'm Sina Vasila Hickey. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Mo Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. And if you like what you hear, you can support this program by um, telling a friend, neighbor, coworker, or that special someone at the local um, bus stop. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. So as new interns are beginning to collaborate with the sanctuary, we look back into our archives to share this interview by former Emma Willard intern Eunice Jung about medicine accessibility within medical ethics. This is Eunice Jung, and today I'm talking to Dr. Christine Daniels, and we're going to talk about medicine accessibility based on medical ethics. Thank you so much for joining me today. Can we start with a brief introduction of yourself? Absolutely. Thank you. First of all, I'd like to thank you, Eunice, for inviting me to do this interview. 
As you said, my name is Christine Daniels, and I received my PhD from Duke University in molecular cancer biology. After completing my PhD, I did a postdoc at Duke University's Human Vaccine Institute, where my research focused on studying how the body is able to develop neutralizing antibodies and also um, studying the hurdles to developing those neutralizing antibodies in the context of HIV. Using this information, I designed HIV vaccine candidates and tested them to determine their ability to circumvent some of those hurdles and to elicit neutralizing antibodies. And currently I work in the biopharmaceutical space where I work to develop gene therapies using an adenovirus associated vector platform as, uh, for delivery. Thank you. Your research about developing a vaccine for HIV looks at socioeconomic differences leading to increased exposure to certain diseases. What is your opinion on the ethics of accessibility of medicine? From an ethical standpoint, I believe that every individual should have access to not only quality care, but also comprehensive care. And I don't think that their socioeconomic status should be a factor in whether they have access to that care. Unfortunately, in reality, that's not what we see. We see very wide health disparities. And to define that term, the CDC defines health disparities as preventable differences in disease burden or outcomes between groups. And a lot of these disparities are not only due to individual differences, but also to systemic differences and structural, um, structural influences. Um, one of the most obvious ones I can think of offhand is cost. So the cost of medical, um, medical treatment or medicines can be uh, prohibitive for many people. This can be particularly exacerbated when you think about people who are uninsured or underinsured. Their insurance status could also dictate the type of care that they have access to whether they're able to see a primary health care provision, health care physician for regular screening and monitoring of their health versus if they have to rely on emergency room services for a late stage treatment option, which ironically can further drive up the cost. Other barriers include physical barriers such as transportation and reliable public transit. There's also just socioeconomic factors such as status if a person has the luxury to take off work to see, to go to a doctor. And so a lot of these health disparities, we can actually see unfold in real time during the current pandemic that we're in. Um, we, we can see that in terms of it being a, an infectious disease by nature. Viruses don't discriminate based on race, class, religion, or anything like that. And so in a perfect world, people would be infected at similar rates. But what we see is that minorities are disproportionately affected by caseload and, and deaths. And with that, um, that just illustrates that there's other factors at play. Some of those factors include technological barriers. So for instance, if you want to get a vaccine, a lot of the scheduling is done online. Whereas if you're in a lower socioeconomic bracket, you may not have access to a computer or you may not be computer literate. Other barriers are um, how the resources were allocated or distributed. You know, there were a lot of shortages and delays in terms of resources reaching communities that are predominantly people of color. And so things like that further widen the health gaps we see and also result in the most the people with the most need being left behind. Thank you. I agree with you that there are ongoing inequalities regarding those accessibility to medicine and leading up to your point regarding how people are unequally receiving such medications. There are not only overprescription issues for older patients, 
but also under prescription issues that you have mentioned, which occur mostly to people of color or people with lower income backgrounds due to mistreatment and stereotype. Can you explain more about this and a possible solution to this under prescription issue? Sure, I'll take a stab at it. So I would like to start by saying I'm not a pharmacist. And so my opinion is from that of the lens of a scientist. But when it comes to talking about prescription, under prescription or over prescription, that occurs at the micro level. And so that will depend on patient provider interactions. So going through medical training of any sort, providers take an oath to do no harm. And yet we still see countless reports or anecdotes about people, particularly people of color, experiencing um, complaints about their pain being dismissed or completely ignored, them being under-treated for the pain that they experience, or sometimes even having treatment completely withheld. And so regardless of the intent of the individual that's doing that, doing those practices, whether it's intentional or not, we are still harmed by those actions. And so, and furthermore, they can, they can cause, they can, can discourage other people they can discourage people from seeking medical care in future settings. So again, you have that cycle perpetuating itself. And a lot of the cycle is deemed due to medical mistrust. And I really don't like that term. I don't like using that term to describe this. I think it's, um, it undermines a lot of the issues that are packed into that term. When we talk about mistrust, and we, we use, it tends to be used as a way to blame the patients for their poor health status. And it puts a lot of um, responsibility on the patient. And it also neglects to acknowledge the role of medical establishments um, in not being trustworthy due to longstanding or historical instances of unethical treatment. And in fact, when you think, when you look at the news or any articles about, you know, vaccine hesitancy or mistrust, we tend to see them hyper-focus on a couple of historical examples, namely Tuskegee, but they don't, you don't see them discussing the present day uh, interactions that people of color have in medical settings that can also uh, contribute to their reluctance to seek medical care. Um, so, you know, I know that these are things that are kind of ideas that face a lot of resistance and that ideological change is a slow process. And so one way, one thing that I try to do as a person of color and a scientist is to try to do work to highlight these issues um, to a broader audience. And also I do a lot of work to try to increase health literacy within underserved populations, just so that individuals can have more awareness about their rights as a patient, information about the care they're receiving, and also feel more empowered in medical settings to take a more active role in their health care. Moreover, um, speaking of under-prescription issues and the cycle that you have mentioned, which was exposure to disease, needing medicine, but then not being able to have access due to various reasons and then being exposed to the disease again, what would be some solutions to this specific cycle? That's a tough question. Uh, there's a lot of things that have been proposed in the literature that goes back decades. But one thing that I guess I would promote as a top tier thing that we could do is to stop citing race as a risk factor for disease and instead to acknowledge the, the role that racism plays as a driver of disease. When we think about how patients are um, screened in medical settings or how their data is entered, we record their race. And if you think about it, race is a, is race is a social construct, construct. There's no biological basis to race. And so there's not really a need for that information. Furthermore, including, factor, including information such as race in a patient's profile can create more opportunities for bias to be um, 
opportunities for bias to occur in terms of the physician's treatment recommendations for that patient. And so when you're in a medical setting, other than for data collection purposes, I really don't even think that we need to record race. Um, I also think that we can mitigate these issues by increasing the representation of people of color in medical settings as physicians and specialists, and also at the research level. So, um, you know, if we, as I am a scientist, I'm speaking as a scientist, and I know that the people that are the leaders of the research get to drive the research questions that we pursue. And if people of color aren't represented in those positions, then we don't get to influence those issues. We don't have power to dictate what type of studies are done and our issues get left behind or studied by people who don't necessarily fully understand the context in which they exist in because their lived experiences are different. I personally wasn't aware of recording races that have no relation to disease in hospitals and the fact that they were actually being used. I hope the funding practices you have mentioned develop in a more equal way. Thank you so much for sharing such important information and your thoughts, Dr. Daniels. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And that was a former intern here at the Media Sanctuary, uh, Eunice Young uh, from uh, Emmerd Willard, uh, doing a segment on medicine accessibility within medical ethics. You too could be such an intern. Uh, we're always looking for more interns. And if you go to mediacentury.org, uh, at the top you'll see a pull-down menu. And you can click on Get Involved and then click on Internships. And we'd love to see you here at the Media Sanctuary and love to hear your voices on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And next, I had the pleasure of speaking with Taina Seeley about her upcoming performance, Fever Pitch, coming to the Linda's WAMC Performing Arts Studio on Saturday, January 27th. Fever Pitch is Taina Asili's new climate justice-themed production, premiering as a work in progress at the Linda's WAMC Performing Arts Studio this Saturday, January 27th. And I'm excited to be joined by Taina Asili now. Welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you are a musician, podcaster, activist, many other things. You've created music videos and documentaries, but multimedia production sounds like a new kind of medium of work. So how did your previous experiences and ideas culminate into this particular concept? Mm. Well, I've been, as you know, working on social justice songwriting for a long time. So I have a full body of work that spans over 20 years that re is related to a lot of different issues. And one of those issues is climate justice. Um, and I have various songs that touch on different themes related to climate justice. And I wanted to bring them together into a show that really focused on that. The charge was actually given to me by my son, who was uh, expressing to me some of the climate anxieties that he had and wanting to know what we could do. And I committed to doing everything that I can do as an artist to make a better future for him and for the generations to come. And I was like, it's time to put my focus here. So I have always wanted to do more multimedia work. I did experiment with that with Resiliencia. Um, prior to the pandemic, um, I received a grant from the Art Center to do a show. At that time, it was called Resilience. 
And it was the precursor to my album and music video documentary series, Resiliencia. And it was, uh, I did a residency at the Art Center and it was, it incorporated interviews and projections and musical, live musical performance. And I was super excited to start to take that seed and plant it in different places across the nation. And then lo and behold, the pandemic hits. And so that unfortunately wasn't able to come to fruition in that way. But what did come to fruition was this music video documentary series. And so those music video documentaries not only were able to be seen by so many people in a whole new way and present the work in a whole new way, but it also started to build my muscle in a whole new medium of film. So uh, with this project, I kind of wanted to circle back to that original intention. And I got mm -hmm. another grant from the Art Center of the Capital Region. And the other element besides projections that I wanted to incorporate was movement and dance. My mother was a dancer. I grew up with dance. I, I took dance classes, you know, in my younger years of life. And have always wanted to reincorporate that into in more intentional ways. If you come to my show, you see me dancing around the stage, but it's not like choreographed or anything. So I had the opportunity to collaborate this time with choreographer Gregory Theodore Marsh and bring in the dance element. So we have the music and the dance and the projections uh, using some of my original footage that I created from music videos and documentaries but remixed and made in whole new ways by new media artist Joseph Amodi. Yeah. Oh, that is so interesting. I didn't realize that piece of that history of, of your works. So could you describe the experience that you expect um, attendees of Fever Pitch to have? So is it, mm -hmm. um, yeah, you gave us a little bit of a taste, but what, what would it be like to be sitting in that audience? Mm. Well, I am looking at that myself and thinking through and still exploring because this is a work in progress production. So you will see the very first stages of what this fever pitch production will be, which I couldn't think of a better audience of people than my local community to help inform and cultivate and help me master this new piece of work. Many of the songs, if you're familiar with my work, many of the songs do come from works that I have in the past. Some of them are remixed with all new sounds. And then we have uh, a new song that we have incorporated into the show called Fever Pitch, the, the title of the show. And I have brought in two amazing dancers, uh, Hetty Barnhill and Eliana Rowe. Uh, they both come from the theater world. Um, Hetty is a longtime uh, dancer, vocalist, actor, actor on Broadway. Um, Eliana has been in numerous uh, local theatrical productions. And so it's a whole new, there's definitely more of a theatrical feel to this show. Um, the movement's going to be a lot more intentional. And of course, we're bringing in this projection element. So having visuals that are incorporated into the show really intentionally as well. So just sticking with the audience, what do you hope that they come away with? You did mention the uh, themes of climate justice and passing mm -hmm. on hope to younger people. Um, but there will be a array of people at this audience. So what do you hope they come away with? Yeah, well, in addition to the performance itself, I should mention that we're going to have a post 
community conversation. So um, the show is one hour, and then the last half hour is dedicated to a community conversation. I've invited some local community organizers, uh, Leah Penniman from Soul Fire Farm, Xanthe from Fridays for the Future, which is a, a youth climate justice group in our local community. They will be present um, along with others. I invite audience members to engage in discussion. So the, sh- the purpose of the show, you know, I think that sometimes we have to remember art isn't a keynote speech, right? I'm not an expert in climate justice. I'm an expert in using creativity to help us to move emotionally through something. The idea of the show was born out of climate anxiety and thinking through how we can shift that anxiety into action, right? How we can shift it into imagination. So it's it doesn't end with me. It actually, it's a, so the idea is that we go through an emotional experience together through the art and then where we land, that's the place of conversation where we talk about what what imagination might come up for us and we're thinking about solutions, what actions we can partake in in our local community right now. And so that's where the rest of the community comes in. And that can be those that I mentioned as a part of those offerings, but anyone who attends is welcome to be a part of those offerings and exploration as well. I love that a part of the conversation is actions. So what are some maybe simple and a little bit more challenging actions that uh, we can take as a community? How do we prevent the the worst case scenario? You know, Sina, I don't have the exact answer to that question. And that's part of the charge of this show um, is that's what we're going to discover together in this show. I've been working with an organization called Soul Fire Farm. It's a farm in Grafton that works to undo racism and seed sovereignty in the food system. Um, I've been board chair of that organization since the beginning. And for me, that's one way, you know, looking at regenerative farming, looking at food justice, reconnecting to land and nature and ourselves as a part of that, that interconnection, right, that of all life. And so for me, what that's looked like in my own community is in my own life has been through gardening, through the, the way the choices that I make in terms of um, how I eat um, as a vegan to what I purchase, what I don't purchase, the cut type of transportation I use. But the reality is um, there's a lot more to be done. There's a lot more action happening in our local community around addressing environmental racism in the South End, for example. Um, I was a part of a demonstration back in the day against the bomb trains that were uh, coming through our local community. There are Fridays for the Future. There are young people who are protesting weekly at the Capitol to demand that our leaders really take some serious accountability to doing what they need to do from a government perspective to change the course of of where we're going. So there's a lot going on. And I am really looking forward to diving into that exploration. I know the sanctuary um, has a lot of programs and things happening, again, in that realm. And I want to hear about them. So I hope that folks from the sanctuary will come as well and share them with our local community so that we can become more unified in this force. Right? That's the idea. Absolutely. 
So Fever Pitch is Saturday, January 27th at the Linda Performing Arts Center in Albany. Doors are at 6.30. Show starts at 7 p.m. Taina Seeley, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you. And I will also notice that uh, Taina is uh, pulling together a really good list of I guess a discussion roundtable. Um, she mentioned Soul Fire Farm and Leah uh, Penniman, the director of that, will be there. Uh, Zahn uh, Plymail, who I've been doing a lot of work with recently, um, with from Fridays for the Future. And another person I've done a lot of work with, uh, Elisha Bacon from Mothers Out Front, will also be part of that presentation on uh, Saturday, January 27th, Fever Pitch at the Linda on Central Avenue in Albany. And we finish our show by hearing from our kitchen sanctuary cook, from our kitchen sanctuary cooks, who will be giving a cooking workshop at our upcoming campus open house on February third. And this interview is from our archives from four years ago. My name is Simone, and I'm here with Jonathan Siegel and Intaba Liff Anderson to talk about their cooking experiences, demystifying what it means to cook and their thoughts on a culinary artist residency at the sanctuary. Thank you both for joining today. Um, So we're gonna dive right in. The first question is, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and how would you describe yourself? I'm Jonathan and I do a lot of, uh, I do a lot of the cooking here at the sanctuary. Uh, Partly it helps uh, make sure that I catch a lot of good music and uh, (laughs) films and uh, and lectures. And since I teach during the week, it's sort of a good counterbalance of energies. Uh-huh. And uh, I'm in Taba. I work as a chef, and it's a seasonal job. And I have the honor of cooking for some amazing people at an artist retreat center in the Adirondacks. I just finished that commitment yesterday, and I'm back here in the capital region and excited about doing some stuff here at the sanctuary. Yes, thank you. I'm, I'm excited too. There's this saying that um, when, you grow, when you grow food or when you start a garden, that it's like you're, you're growing the garden, but in fact, the garden is growing you. So I feel like it's an interesting question to ask, like how has cooking helped you grow? And maybe this time in top, if you want to start. Sure. Um, Well, it was in my 20s when I discovered that I really was passionate about food and nutrition. And it came about because I was having some health challenges and um, I was largely able to address those through using food as a healing modality. And um, then it just opened up this whole world of possibility because everyone eats and this connection that we have to the earth that comes through food is uh, so profound and it affects every aspect of life here on this planet and on the individual level also. So to me, it's just an endless source of inspiration and, and uh, yeah, energy. I never get tired of it. And uh, I guess I've had a few, a few chances to get excited, uh, get excited about food, get excited uh, whether cooking or even even on the gardening level. Uh, I've never been much of a gardener, but uh, my mom got into it when I was young. We 
had a little garden about the size of this studio, uh, which was just enough to grow, uh, you know, grow some green beans, which is always a good vegetable to feed little kids. <laughs> there's lots of uh, lots of ways to work it into a meal. Um, and then in college, uh, we had food co-ops where the students did all the cooking, food buying, and cleaning. Uh, it cost less, it tasted better, and you could even grab a midnight snack if you were pulling an all-nighter. Wow. Uh, and you learn a lot uh, cooking for 100 people in that situation. So that was a, that was a good thing. Wow. Yeah, that, that food co-op, I wouldn't mind have, mm-hmm. having that when I was in college <laughs> or something. That's really cool. Um, so going off of both what you said, which probably overlaps into this next question, is is there a cooking experience that you've had that was really memorable or that impacted you? Something that I would say that is like just really, I don't know, changed your life or just still with you? Mm. Oh, where to begin? I also I also have two daughters, so cooking was pretty uh, pretty intense for several years. You know that I didn't want to make them any instant anything. Uh, that I also I always wanted them to see like actual things cooked on the spot uh, for them. Uh, I think it's part of just the uh, uh, just just the just the nourishing aspect of it uh, that any any parent can do for any kid, uh, and uh, that that it's something that you you generally get to do in 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 your house. Um, but over over here, I guess cooking for some of the events here has been really exciting, and cooking for Uptown Summer, the program we have. Uh, with the summer youth employment program, uh, where the teenagers come, they do a, they do a lot of work over the summer, and uh, I realized one thing that would be good for morale would be for them to to eat pretty well themselves, and uh, the one of the big surprises there, uh, one that was one that they were they were ex- more excited about food and about cooking than they knew when they first mm-hmm. got here. Yeah. Uh, I think I, I've mentioned to you how uh, one one girl said, we eat garbage the rest of our lives. Don't worry about this. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. but, uh, but also, other students have come, perhaps even including her, and said, I've got to show you how my grandma makes greens. These greens are good. Let me show you how my grandma does it. Uh, and part of the excitement uh, has been uh, has been just how I can learn anything from anybody, uh, including professional chefs like Intaba, and also teenagers who come in for the summer. All have something to teach me. Um, I think probably the most influential food experience that I had was um, when my kids were young and uh, we were living in a a house on some land which was pretty remote 
and uh, that was on purpose. I really wanted to try homesteading and growing all of our own food. So there was a period of a couple of years where we really bought very little food. And uh, what we weren't able to grow, we could often forage or barter with neighbors. And I was doing a lot of canning. And uh, it just felt really good to be able to provide for our family and um, friends to use that connection with the place that we were. And to just be, it was really empowering. And soon after that, I just had this crazy idea that I wanted to open a restaurant. And um, my husband and I also had some experience at that time where we were doing building. Um, We had put up some buildings on our land using a a natural building technique called cob, which is like, it's like adobe. It's a mixture of clay, sand, and straw. And you build it monolithically, like building a sandcastle. So it's this really organic building method. And uh, my husband got really excited about the idea of building a Cobb restaurant. And uh, so we actually decided we were gonna do it, which is a really insane thing to do. (laughs) Um, So it took us about nine months. Um, We were in construction and we did do a lot of earthen building as part of the, the, the landscaping in particular, the restaurant we built has in an earthen courtyard and, uh, and a giant earthen oven. And then um, I started working a lot with local farms because I wasn't able to grow everything that we were going to use. Um, and at our height, we were using stuff from like 25 local suppliers. So that was so amazing. I would just stand like in the cooler and like turn around and look on every side of me. There would be these stacks of like boxes of greens and mushrooms and um, berries. And um, it was just really fun. It was so wonderful to be able to, to kind of take all that. And then the cooking process for me is not as much of a, it is a creative process, but it's more like a transformative process that you take, like the the beauty of the of the ingredients you're working with, and you transform it. And uh, so that that was a really amazing experience to have as an opportunity to to do that. And it just I felt like it really I grew so much as a chef um, through those years, the restaurant years. Wow. That's not, that's that's amazing. Yeah, I love what what both of you shared, and just like catching on to that part of like cooking being this this act of like being able to take care of you you and your your family and and the world. I'll just mention I've always been incredibly impressed by the quality and the variety of of, of cooking here at the sanctuary. So I'm sure it's going to be a worthwhile event. Our open house is on Saturday, February 3rd from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Great time to learn more about the sanctuary and to get involved as a volunteer and intern. And that is our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. 
And I'm Mark Denley. want to thank uh, Joan Eason for being our engineer tonight and thank all our volunteers who made today's episode possible. We appreciate you listening. Until next time. Thank you.